Of the 95 churches in the city of Jerusalem, the most interesting may be St. Peter's in Galicantu. It's located on Mount Zion, south of the old city. In Jesus' day, the site was within the city walls. And near the upper room where Jesus celebrated his last supper with his disciples. The church was built over the house of Caiaphas, the priest. And it was here that the high priest put Jesus on trial. In fact, the basement of the house is actually a dungeon, probably where Jesus was held that fateful night. In fact, you can still see where the handcuffs screwed into the rock wall. On top of the spire at the center of the church's roof is a golden rooster. For Galicantu is actually Latin for cock crow. The church was built to commemorate Peter's tragic denial. After a self-confident Peter had boasted that he would never deny Jesus, the Lord told him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Today, the church in Galicantu depicts this tragic scene in its courtyard. A servant girl said that she had seen Peter with Jesus when he shouted, No way was that me! Another girl identified Peter, but he said, I do not know the man. Then in front of a group who had seen Peter with Jesus, he cursed and he swore. And he said, I do not know him. And immediately, a rooster crowed. You know, that could have been the end of Peter. Luke 22, verse 62 tells us that after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus was not through with his disciple. After failing the Lord so miserably, Peter was so discouraged that he went back to fishing. And it was by the beach, by the sea, on the beach, that the risen Christ appeared to Simon Peter. Peter had been called to be a pastor. The word literally means shepherd. And Jesus recommissioned Peter to his calling. Three times. Peter had failed his Lord, but now three times the Lord encourages and restores Peter. Jesus asked Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter was to shepherd God's flock, and he stayed true to that calling for the rest of his life. In fact, that's what he's doing here in his two letters to the church. As shepherds do, he's feeding them and he's warning the flock of danger. In 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter, the first letter, he warned primarily about persecution. And now in his second letter, he is dealing with false teachers. You know, the church in Peter's day and the church today was under attack from without and from within. Peter doesn't want us to deny Jesus as he did. He desires for us to build a strong faith be a faithful witness. And so he encourages us in this letter he writes to his beloved followers. And he begins in chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, literally a love slave. You know, by the Galilee, the risen Lord had asked Peter, do you love me? And he had said, yes, Lord, I love you. Here he affirms that statement one more time. He says he serves Jesus out of love. He is a love slave. And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Realize faith alone is of no value. A person's faith is only as good as its object. Folks in all religions believe in their gods, but believing a thing doesn't make it so. Christian faith proves precious faith since it is faith in the right standing with God that is earned by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice here, Jesus is referred to as both God and Savior. Once I had preached my message and I had a Muslim lady approach me after the Bible study. And I'll never forget, she remarked, she said, you know, I really enjoyed what you had to say about God today, but I got confused when you mentioned Jesus. You talked about him as if he were God. And I was glad I had made myself so clear. For Jesus is God. He is God incarnate or God in the flesh. You see, the deity of Christ is what sets him apart from all other religious leaders. Jesus was not simply a rabbi or a prophet or some holy man. It's not enough to even call Jesus the greatest man who ever lived. He was more than man. Jesus Christ, as Peter tells us, was God and Savior. And then he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice that. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by glory and virtue. See, Jesus is the key that unlocks all things that pertain to a full and holy life. You know, if life came with a treasure map, Jesus would be the X that marks the spot. Reminds me of Jeff Ferreira. In reconciling his checkbook, he called the First National Bank of Chicago to check on his balance. And by the way, you know, I just learned last night that the millennials and the Gen Z, you younger people, you don't even have a checkbook. You don't even reconcile your checkbook. You don't balance your checkbook. What's wrong with you people? I get so much enjoyment out of balancing my checkbook. Well, it's the way it goes. But when he called Chicago, the Chicago bank to check on his balance, the electronic voice told him, you have a balance of $924,844,204.32. Well, guess what? Jeff got excited, as you might imagine. Sadly, though, it was a computer glitch. The billion wasn't his to keep. Yet in Christ, we are spiritual billionaires, and it's no glitch, it's grace. Your account has been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are now entitled to all that is in Christ Jesus. You are a tycoon, a spiritual tycoon. I hope you know that. And then he says in verse 4, "...by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises." Notice here, uh, one of Peter's favorite words is the word precious. He loves that word precious in referring to the things of God. Already back in 1 Peter, he spoke of the precious blood of Jesus. He called Jesus the precious cornerstone. In 2 Peter, he's already spoken of our precious faith. And now 
God's precious promises. Our blessings in Christ are Peter's treasure. And notice that through these precious promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Did you know that when you came to Christ, God implanted in you His nature? His Holy Spirit writes God's law on your heart. God's desires, His intents, His inclinations are uploaded to your basic nature. The Holy Spirit installs a love for God and a love for others onto your spiritual heart drive. And this new nature is what enables us to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, he tells us. Boy, society's selfishness and violence is a direct result of our lust. People are driven to evil by craving for what they don't have. A hunger for greater pleasure or more possessions is what fuels our sin. We escape the clutches of lustful living only when we're filled with the joy and with the life of our Lord Jesus. And then he says in verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now, all of God's precious blessings are received by faith alone. But faith has to be fed, and it has to be fortified to remain strong. And that's why you and I have to add to our faith those qualities that help it focus and keep it pure and enable it to grow. This is what Peter tells us next. He says, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, add self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're saved by faith alone, but faith needs to be nourished for it to grow strong. Like a bodybuilder. You see, you grow muscles through workouts. Workouts are mandatory. But you'll get more out of your workout if you add a protein supplement, won't you? And this is also true in your relationship with God. It's all faith. But faith grows by adding spiritual supplements, virtue, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. By faith, you become a Christian. But then virtue or integrity helps you really be who you are. Knowledge helps you to know who you are. Self-control helps you to focus on who you are in Christ. Endurance helps you to remain who you are. Godliness helps you to adjust to who you are. Brotherly kindness causes you to share who you are. And love is the way that we show who we are. You see, faith is like a baked potato. Did you know this? You can get it plain or you can get it fully loaded. Peter is saying that we need to have a fully loaded faith. And then verse 9, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Man, never forget what you've been cleansed of. We've been cleansed of our old sins. You know, I heard a great definition for the word nostalgia. 
It's the pleasure of sitting in front of a fire without remembering you had to cut the wood. That's nostalgia. See, we can get so used to our blessings that we forget that it was gained at a great cost. Our faith in Jesus is a great gift, and that's why we need to keep it strong. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. See, the more you add the above supplements to your faith, the less likely you'll be to stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, rather than limp into heaven, rather than just get into heaven, wouldn't you prefer an abundant entrance? Well, that's what you can have if you build up your faith and add to your faith. And then notice these words here, verse 10. He says, to make your calling and election sure. And that's a strange sounding phrase. You know, a calling implies that we did nothing to initiate the call. God calls, we answer. Election means that we're chosen, not that we choose. So how do you make certain something that you had nothing to do with in the first place? Well, here's another example of the Bible's mysterious blending of free will and predestination. God chose you, but you choose God. Both are true. And you chose him by faith, thus to make your salvation sure. You need a strong faith, and you build up your faith by adding to it what supports it. Virtue, and knowledge, and endurance, brotherly kindness, and love, etc. It says in verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now remember, Peter is a pastor, and the pastor's job is to remind you of the truths that you already know. We occupy fallen flesh, and we live in a fallen world, and it is our tendency to forget. So in a temporal world, even eternal truths can grow fuzzy at times. That's why when we come to church week in and week out, we need the pastor to twist the lens again and bring the spiritual realities back into focus. We, we need him to help us to appreciate God's truth. Peter writes in verse 13, he says, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent. And notice here, he refers to his physical body as what? As a tent. In contrast to a house, which is a permanent structure, Peter said, My body is a tent. Tents are temporary. Our earthly bodies are pop-ups. Did you know that? What you're dwelling in right now is just a pop-up, man. It pops up for a time, but one day it's going to get folded away. We're all here today and gone tomorrow. But while Peter has the opportunity, he considers it his duty to remind the church of God's truths. He says, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Author Rosalind Aronson writes a beautiful piece that she entitles, Mr. Tentmaker. I want to read you a portion. In fact, if you're getting a little older and you're not as spry as you once were, I don't know if that applies to anybody, but 
You need to listen real closely to this. This is fun. She writes, It was nice living in this tent when it was strong and secure. But Mr. Tentmaker, it's scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak and the canvas has a rip. It's scary in here. Mr. Tentmaker, why did you give me such a flimsy tent? The tentmaker replies, As the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you. I made a tent for myself once. It too was vulnerable, and attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. But you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. The experience now prepares me to live in your tent with you if you invite me. You'll learn as we dwell together that real security comes from me being in your tent with you. When storms come, I'll hold you. Someday your tent will collapse. It's only for temporary use. And when it does, you and I will leave together. I promise not to leave before you do. Our bodies are but a tent. We await the heavenly model. And then he says in verse 15, Peter makes an interesting comment. He says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, how's he going to do that? Well, this is why Peter is going to put his memories down in ink and on parchment. He's going to write these things down. It's vital for a pastor to leave his church with a written record. And that's what Peter did. Bible scholars believe that Mark's gospel was Peter's remembrances of his time with Jesus on earth. Mark was Peter's disciple. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make up this gospel that we preach. See, the gospels are not some ruse or some hoax. Here Peter speaks for all the gospel writers in insisting that they simply reported what they saw and what they heard. He goes on to say, And we were eyewitnesses. Of his majesty. You remember when that happened on top of Mount Hermon, when Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory, Peter saw his majesty. Up close, Peter saw the glory of God radiating from the Son of God. It was a moment that Peter would never forget. And it wasn't just what he saw there that impressed him, but what he heard. For he says in verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And it wasn't just Peter. We heard the voice. Three men actually, Peter, James, and John, heard a heavenly voice, an audible voice. God himself spoke and identified his son Jesus and testified of his sinless life in Jesus, the Father, was well pleased. Now, there are two great apologetical proofs for the claims of Jesus Christ. First are the eyewitness accounts. Remember, all the gospel writers suffered for the truths that they recorded and preached. See, if they'd gotten rich off the story, they might have had a motive to deceive. 
But it's hard to imagine men being martyred for what they knew was a lie. Those eyewitness accounts are powerful. And the second great proof of the claims of Christ were the fulfilled prophecies. Over 300 Old Testament details were fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. Predictions relating to where and when and how and why Messiah would come, they all amazingly came true in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is Peter's next point, verse 19. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, these prophecies, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Prior to our seeing Jesus one day, today we rest in his word. And he says of God's word, he says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, I often hear people say, and, and I'm sure you do too, oh, the Bible has different meaning for everyone. You interpret the Bible your way, and I'll interpret the Bible my way. No way. That's not how it works. Peter, has, Peter here says that the Scripture is not to be privately interpreted. That means that it has an objective intent. See, it's not what you think it means, nor is it what I think it means, but it's what God intended for it to mean. That's what matters. And that meaning applies to us all. The Bible is universal truth. He says in verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here's the genius of your Bible. Human authors pen the message so that it comes across in the vernacular that humans can understand. But the authors who wrote it were only wrote what they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write. And so the end result is a book that relates to the human mind, but it also reveals the mind of God. What an amazing book. Well, the Bible is God's authoritative word, but there are people out there who dare to twist and cloud God's word which is what brings us to chapter 2. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit to bring us God's Word. But there are also unholy men, Moved by unholy spirits like pride and lust and greed and fame and Satan that have distorted God's word. Beware of false teachers and destructive heresies. They twist the truth to the point of denying the Lord who bought them. Take the Mormons, for example. They support biblical morality, they promote family values. Hey, Mormons usually make nice neighbors. There's only one problem. They deny the uniqueness of the Godhood of Jesus and His once and for all atonement for our sins. And this makes them the most lethal type of teacher. It's heresy wrapped in sweetness. It's a pretty poison. 
They deny the deity of Jesus, and they're sending millions of people to hell. Sadly, verse 2, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow. Then Peter explains their appeal. He says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. See, these false teachers are fueled by ego and greed. They twist the truth to capture and then to boast in their larger audience. Peter warns, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Judgment is inevitable for those who would seek to be spiritual deceivers. And in the next few verses, Peter gives us three examples of how God judged false teachers in the past and how he will do it again. He begins, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, here's the first example of God's judgment, the flood of Noah's day. Now, remember, this destruction was necessitated by an angelic apostasy or a falling away. Jude, verse 6, describes how the angels did not keep their proper domain. Many Bible scholars believe the demons crossed a God-imposed boundary between angelic and human, between celestial and terrestrial. Demons took on human bodies and engaged sexually with the daughters of men. And this resulted in a perversion of the human race. It could be that Greek mythology of the gods and goddesses, of the titans and the nymphs, had a factual basis in this perversion. And this is what necessitated the severity of God's judgment, where he had to bring about a worldwide flood, a global flood. It was needed to wipe out all of humanity. There was a polluted gene pool. Of, the human gene pool had become polluted. And according to Peter, God took these perverse demons who caused this, and he chained them in the darkest part of hell. Here the Greek word translated hell is Tartarus. It's the only place in the New Testament where the term is used. Apparently God created a special holding tank for these vile demons who vexed and perverted the human race. That's one example of God's judgment. Another example takes place later in Genesis. He says, And God, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Sodom was also notorious for its sexual perversions and for an aggressive homosexuality. But that was only part of the reason that God torched the city. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 tells us, Look, this was the iniquity of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride fullness of food, and abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. See, it wasn't just sexual sin that for which God judged Sodom. It was pride. And it was a lack of charity for the poor. 
that brought down God's judgment on the city of Sodom. Lest we get haughty, lest we think that the lesson of Sodom Sodom doesn't apply to us, we need to remember that selfishness was also her sin. Well, God judged Sodom. But even in that judgment, there was a reminder of his mercy. For God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot was righteous by faith. He knew God, and he tried to follow the ways of God. But his associations with Sodom, his desire to keep up with what was going on, the the way he allowed uh, the filth of the city to infiltrate his own thoughts and soul, this is what made him miserable. He was tormented by the evil around him. And to me, this is the sad plight of many Christians today. We refuse to separate ourselves from worldly influences, and we end up oppressed. If you constantly subject yourself to the evil around you, believe me, it'll take its toll. It will vex you. It'll torment your soul. It was said of Lot, he had enough of the Lord not to be happy in the world, but enough of the world not to be happy in the Lord. Lot was the classic fence straddler. You recall what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, be hot or cold, not lukewarm. Verse 9 tells us that Sodom proved the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Sodom teaches us that God knows how to judge the wicked and he knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. He knows how to do both. Sodom had failed to come under the authority of God's word. We're told, for they are presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Woe to self-willed people who rename their sin as an alternative lifestyle. Renaming sin doesn't avoid God's judgment. And then he says in verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, when you compare this portion of 2 Peter with verse 9 of the book of Jude, it seems that Peter is referring to the story of Michael, the archangel. Perhaps you remember that story. Jude tells us that Michael actually fought with the devil over the body of Moses. And if the devil had taken Moses' corpse, you know what he would have done. He would have turned it into an idol. Israel would have worshipped that idol. And yet even in the struggle, Michael was respectful of his opponent. Jude tells us he dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Apparently, respect is common among angels. It's only sinful men that arrogantly buck God-given authority. For he sums it up. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. And here is our modern world in a nutshell. Speaking evil of authority 
it doesn't understand. Today, we've defied God's plan for the sexes and His definition of gender. We scoff at God's authority over sexual relations. We've tossed out male authority in the home and in the church. We mock God's authority over the government. We turn a deaf ear to God's morality. We ignore God's order without realizing that His will is for our safety and for our betterment. And the negative consequences that result are surely going to drag us down. We're like brute beasts who run roughshod over matters we don't really understand. And these men who act like beasts will utterly perish in their own corruption. Go against the Word of God. Go against His laws. And you sign your death sentence. You'll perish in your own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. That's an interesting phrase. You know, folks who carouse in the daytime are people with no shame. Peter is saying it's one thing to sin privately under the cover of darkness, ashamed of what you're doing. Certainly another thing to sin openly and publicly with no squint of a conscience. And this was the sin of Sodom. In the city of Sodom, it was gay pride month all year long. And Peter says of those without a conscience, he says they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Sadly, Peter's readers had accepted people with these false ideas in rebellion to God as part of God's family. He's saying they've created a blemish on your worship. Your Christianity is a polluted brand. And you see, this is going on in churches today. We've accepted a sinful stain on our, on our fellowship, on our churches. We need to stand up for God's truth. He says in verse 14, Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. These false teachers preyed on believers with a weak faith, unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. You need to understand, a false teacher is a skilled manipulator. He plays on people's emotions. He uses circular reasoning. He employs familiar phrases while redefining the terms. He uses all these techniques to take advantage of his listeners. He says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You remember Balaam's problem was he was greedy. That was his sin. He was a soothsayer who went divining for dollars. That's what he did. Balaam was a prophet for hire. God warned him not to curse Israel. And yet the Moabites bribed him with riches and got him to do it anyway. We're told, and he was rebuked for his iniquity. For a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. God spoke to him through a donkey, which is what he does to us every Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. <laughs> God uses strange methods to speak to us sometimes. 
Hey, Balaam reminds me of the CEO who offered his accountant $100,000 to doctor the books. The man agreed. Well, then the boss came back to him and he said, I really want you to do it for a penny. The accountant got angry. He said, of course not. What do you think I am, a thief? And that's when the boss replied, I've already established that. All that's undecided is your price. It's been said, every man has his price. I hope not. A false teacher sells out. A godly man stays faithful. He says in verse 17, these are wells without water. The false teacher, he utters promises that never materialize. They're wells without water. He's like clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These spiritual deceivers are like clouds that just sort of pass through the sky off to oblivion. It says in verse 18, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. In other words, the false teacher gives you a religious justification for your lust. So people get lured with the idea that you can please God and satisfy your flesh simultaneously. A lot of people selling that out there, a lot of churches giving people that illusion. Spirituality without morality. Believing without behaving. Hey, it's a lie. It's false. It's not true. It's deception. It says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. See, while they promise liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Here's the pastor who condemns the evil of adultery while he's involved in a secret affair off to the side. Here's the guy who rails about the plague of pornography despite his secret life on the internet. Here's the preacher who promises freedom while he himself is trapped in bondage. This is the false teacher. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The saddest person is the one who has been set free from sin by the power of Jesus only to revert back to that same sin and get re-entangled in its web. Peter writes this, some stunning words. He says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, how tragic is that? Hear what Peter's saying here? It would have been better to have never known a righteous life, to have known it and turned away from it. Apparently, once you take it for granted, it causes a certain shame. It's hard to makes it harder to go back. Verse 22. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. And here he quotes Proverbs 26, verse 11. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Here's another way to think of it. Imagine a prisoner 
set free. And yet because of his own laziness, he commits a crime just to return to the jailhouse because jail is easier for him. You see, at least in jail, he's got a bed, he's got hot meals. Well, Jesus sets us free from sin, but some Christians are too lazy to add to their faith the spiritual supplements, virtue, and knowledge, and self-control, and endurance, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. And so they fall right back into the sin from which they had been delivered. It's a terrible plight. I have met Christians who sob over the spiritual prison they now occupy. But if the truth were known, they're not free because they don't want to be. At least not enough to do what it takes to add to their faith. And so in conclusion this morning, are you ready for this? It's how Peter concludes it. So in conclusion, buckle your seatbelt. Don't be like a hog who after being washed returns to the spiritual slop. Don't let that happen to you. Instead, build a strong faith and never, ever go back.